In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail, guardian of the Redeemer, spouse of the Blessed Virgin Mary. To you God entrusted his only Son. In you Mary placed her trust. With you Christ became man. Blessed Joseph, to us too show yourself a father and guide us in the path of life. Obtain for us grace, mercy, and courage, and defend us from every evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, I know there's some new faces out here, so welcome to our first Wednesday devotional. And tonight we're going to talk about the Nativity, and we're going to look at the Nativity through St. Joseph's eyes here in this year of St. Joseph. So, We've already gone through kind of the past couple of months, and last month in particular, we talked about the Annunciation. So, Mary conceived Jesus Christ. Joseph has now discovered Mary's pregnancy, wanted to distance herself, himself from her because he wasn't sure what was going on. He was humble. He knew her to be holy. He didn't think that or know that he was going to be called, and so he waited for that divine revelation for his own Annunciation which the angel came in, his, in the dream. Joseph got up and did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He gave his fiat at that time, and so he brought Mary into his home. And so now here we are in the home of Nazareth. Mary and Joseph are together. Here they know they have the Messiah, the God-made man. And so the preparations are beginning right here in Nazareth. They're Mary, maybe sewing some of those swaddling cloths. You can imagine Joseph putting his carpentry to work, right? He's putting together a crib and everything else. So their house in Nazareth, getting all set up for the baby. Now this would be a time that they also would be aware of. They would certainly know of the prophecy of Micah. These two knew scripture very, very well. Joseph was aware that there would be a virgin, and that it ended up being his bride. He was aware that the Savior would come through the line of David, would be the heir to the throne, of course, of course which Joseph fulfilled. And so they would be aware of the prophecy of Micah that says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. So Mary and Joseph's home is in Nazareth. How was this going to be fulfilled? We can certainly contemplate this. They had to think about this. They had to question, by what means is this supposed to be fulfilled? Is this a literal fulfillment, or is there some, some other way? How is this going to come about? And so the months go by. You know, Mary had a few months to go, and where the incarnation came by, kind of those angelic forces, and then proclaiming Right? Mary is visited by Gabriel, and so the angels are the ones that tell Mary and ask her for her fiat, which she gives, and the word becomes flesh. That prophecy fulfilled by the angelic voice. So too with Joseph in the dream, 
But it was not by angels that they would go to Bethlehem. They may have been tempted to fulfill the prophecy on their own, but they were discerning, pondering spirits. They would not go above the divine will. They would not get in front of whatever it was that God had prescribed. They would always wait for the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And so it's by human events they discover that this is to be fulfilled, right? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that, the, that all the world should be enrolled. So whether it was by way of pride, whether it was maybe tax implications, <laughs> whatever it was, Caesar Augustus wanted the whole world enrolled, the whole civilized world, which was predominantly under Roman rule. He wanted the whole world enrolled And of course, this holy couple, they've spent months preparing their place in Nazareth, and now they're days away from having a child, and this comes about. Probably Joseph would have liked a little more heads up that (laughs) that this was going to be the case. I mean, we all know that if you're days away from delivering, the baby's coming at any time, right? (laughs) That's the way those things work. So, Joseph knows that he is of the line of David. And in fact, he is heir to the throne of David. The angel reminded him of that when he addresses Joseph. Joseph, son of David. He reminded Joseph of who he is, what role he plays in salvation history and that prophecy fulfilled. And so Joseph knows, okay, I've got to go to Bethlehem. That's, I'm, I'm of the house of David. That's where I've got to go. But Mary, too, is an heiress of the line of David. So her, too, she would be enrolled as well. And so they're looking forward, and they see this five-ish day journey. They pass through the rough terrain of Samaria. And so it wouldn't be some light, easygoing journey. It would be a rough, rough road. And again, Joseph, his bride is about to have a child. Now certainly, there's joy in knowing and properly discerning God's will, but sometimes it comes with the cross, right? It can be God's will, but it is still difficult. And so Joseph is faced with this trial, and he's obedient to God's will. So Mary mounts the donkey, and they begin this road. And you imagine that, you know, they're enlightened. So, okay, here we are. The prophecy of Micah is going to be fulfilled, and we got to get to Bethlehem because I don't know when this baby is coming. There's not a lot of time to pack up a lot of the things that they might have prepared. That crib's got to (laughs) wait. And so they set off, and... While they're on their journey, and they're from Nazareth, you would figure that Joseph would at least have a hope that, well, I probably have some relatives there, some distant relatives. I probably have some acquaintances there that we're probably going to be okay, that we probably have somebody there that's going to take care of us. We have the Messiah with us. 
God will provide, certainly. So as their journey on the road, day one, day two, day three, the road starts getting busier and busier. Because Bethlehem, right, all of those that were of the line of David needed to go to Bethlehem to register. Bethlehem's a small town. And so when the line of David came back from the exile, they didn't go back to Bethlehem. They went to places like Nazareth. And so they were far greater in number than what Bethlehem could necessarily hold. And so they arrive, and they're on the outskirts, and you can just see this place, right? It's got to be just bursting at the seams. There are way too many people here for accommodations. But Joseph, I got to do something for Mary. She's going to have a child at any moment, and it's the Savior of the world. I have to find the best, the greatest accommodations possible. And so he goes door to door, right? Asking, hey, can you take us in? Look at my wife. And they probably didn't have the ring doorbells back then, but you can imagine, no, we're, we're, we're full here. It's your problem. Move on. I got our, our own stuff going on here. Door after door. The mystics say that it was at least 50 doors that he visited. So he is just doing the full tour, exhaustingly, looking for somewhere, someone, somewhere in all of creation that will house the birth of the Creator. But there was no place for them in the inn. And so at the very beginning here of our Savior's life, we hear what he would later say, I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Here it was God's will that in Bethlehem, the Savior was to be born. And the Bethlehemites, they rejected this will. Probably, hopefully, unknowingly, but they were blind to see what was being presented to them. They couldn't see past their own dealings, past the fact that they were booked full, that they just could not accommodate this holy couple at this time. And Joseph is powerless, just watching all this happen, to see the Savior disowned entering the world just like he would be rejected leaving it. But they have to do something. And so as they continue to survey Bethlehem, on the very outskirts of the town, kind of past the walls and everything else, they find a stable, a grotto, a cave. And it would not be necessarily uncommon for travelers to spend time in a cave. Certainly, if there was room in an inn and they could afford it, always preferable, right? <laughs> but it wouldn't necessarily be uncommon in that region that 
shepherds or whoever else would, would maybe need to spend an evening at the cave. But we can imagine that this particular cave, this grotto, had to be just a disaster. Had to be just filthy, uninhabitable. Why? Because Bethlehem was bursting at the seams. And yet this place is still open on the outskirts. Many people had to pass by and say, yeah, not doing that. <laughs> we ain't spending the night there. We will go a little bit down the way. We'll travel longer in the morning and have a longer commute. But we, no, we, we ain't staying here. <laughs> it had to be just one of the lowest, filthiest, dirtiest places on earth. And yet it would be there that purity itself would be born. And so Joseph, certainly, he sees these accommodations, but they have no choice. The time is near. And we can imagine Mary and Joseph, these humble hearts who shed, they were poor of spirit, they shed all of these earthly belongings and led a little, very simple life. And even though you can imagine Joseph, it would have been again a cross, but seeing God's will that you know, he, he would have, you can imagine, would have died to provide something greater for his bride, the immaculate conception herself, for God made flesh, that this is all I can provide. But they would have thankful hearts, that here God did provide. There is shelter, and so as grungy as it looks, all right, let's make the preparations. They begin sweeping it out, right? The mystics say that even the angels actually help participate, get this place ready, because they know what's going on. They know that God himself, they're excited too. They've not laid eyes on God in the flesh before. So the mystics report that the angels actually pitch in, and you can imagine Joseph. He sees this rickety old manger, going to have to do for a crib, but we can imagine at least that he cracks his knuckles a little bit and puts his carpenter skills to work once again and makes it as accommodating as it possibly can be, because it's going to hold his son. So then the moment approaches swiftly, and while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, obviously, this is no ordinary birth. <laughs> and so, gathering some of the writings and from the, from the mystics, they talk about Mary being enwrapped and enveloped in prayer and in consolation beyond imagination. And her prayer that she enters as this time is approaching, maybe minutes away or whatnot, would be the same question that Joseph would kind of ask and contemplate himself. God, teach me how to be 
a mother. Teach me how to be a father to you. As first parents, parents for the first time, we all know that anxiety of you may have a nephew or a niece, you may have held babies, but when it's you on the line, there's no training. I haven't done this before. But these two, they don't just have their firstborn child. It is God himself. And so we're going to be responsible for feeding, for changing his diapers. The word made flesh, the word that breathed out galaxies. I'm supposed to feed him and take care of him. How? Give me strength. Give me insight. Give me wisdom. Was Joseph present when Mary had Jesus? There are kind of two, I don't know if you'd say schools of thought, but two traditions. You have the Eastern Rite that says that Joseph was not present, that Joseph was out searching for a midwife because he knew the time had come and he wanted to get her the help and the aid that she would need. And then you have the mystics, though, that say that Joseph was absolutely there, that he was in prayer himself right there at the entrance of the grotto, that he was himself wrapped in ecstasy, so much so that he was so connected with God at that moment that he wasn't conscious kind of in a human manner, but he was conscious and knew everything that was going on. And so the mystics say that it was not until Mary called that Joseph would finally come from this state of ecstasy. And the first object that he laid eyes on was the infant God in the arms of his virgin mother. So I quote two of the mystics here. Maria de Agreda reports that Joseph issued from his ecstasy and on being restored to consciousness, the first sight of his eyes was the divine child in the arms of the virgin mother reclining against her sacred countenance and breast. There he adored him in profoundest humility and in tears of joy he kissed his feet in great admiration. In St. Faustina, only after the mother of God put Jesus in the manger did the light of God awaken Joseph, who also prayed. And so Joseph either comes to from the state of ecstasy or he arrives alone at the cave and he views Our Lady holding the child in the swaddling cloths, clothes, lying him in a manger. And here we have the first adoration to take place. The first time that human eyes can actually physically see God. An honor that was an invitation that was given to countless in Bethlehem. Yet they rejected it, and instead it's the animals that get to join Mary and Joseph in this first adoration. Isaiah's prophecy being fulfilled, the ox knows its owner, And the ass, its master's crib, but Israel does not know, 
My people does not understand. And within this cave, then, the next tremendous moment in in Joseph's life, there'd be that moment where Joseph receives the child for the first time. This moment beautifully captured by the mystic Maria de Agreda, who says that Joseph falls on his knees to receive him from the hands of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and she says to him, My husband and my helper, receive in thy arms the treasure of the eternal Father and participate in this blessing of the human race. So here's Joseph just holding God, his son, whom he is going to raise. The scene then cuts. We move over then to a nearby field, a region nearby, and we, we get the scene. And in that region there were shepherds out in the field, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The angel said to them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Just as Jesus in his ministry proclaims, he came first for his people. His first mission was to the people of Israel, the Jews. And these were the only Jews, apparently, that were open. Joseph and Mary had already tried everybody there in Bethlehem. But here they find, out in the field, these shepherds, who in that, those days would be kind of like the lowest of the low. But it's to these that the angels go to. And the angels, we don't know how, but obviously they somehow direct the shepherds to where Mary and Joseph are, whether they directly point or whether they are able to see this radiance that some of the mystics report is coming from the cave. Now this takes place near what's called the Tower of Edar, where there's now a church built in honor of the holy angels, which is just about a mile away from Bethlehem. So it's not far. And while we don't know the number of shepherds that came, tradition, and within that church, there are honored three shepherds, which kind of beautifully matches up with the three magi that will arrive here a little bit later. And these shepherds are said to have lived in a location between the grotto and Bethlehem called the House of the Dawn, which is supposed to be where their, where their actual dwelling was. So after these three shepherds, they encounter the angels. It says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. So Mary and Joseph are enjoying their time, right, in adoration 
with this child. But then suddenly their scene is interrupted. They'd hear something going on. Somebody's approaching. This, this scene's interrupted. And so Joseph would be the one, the guardian, the protector, to go check out what's, what's going on. And so he'd meet these shepherds who, it says that they came with fervor, right? They're full of energy. They want to see what's been going on. And so they approach. They meet with Joseph. He greets them. And it's Joseph that invites them in to see the Savior, to meet him for the first time, God's people, and together to fall down and adore with the Holy Family. We can imagine that Joseph, hearing, seeing the excitement of these, where he was rejected by those in Bethlehem, would echo the words of our Savior, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the babes or to the lowly. Or Mary in her Magnificat, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of low degree. Again, these lowest of the low of the people, it is them that's afforded this opportunity. And they would converse with the Holy Family. I think we sometimes tend to think that it's boom, it's the scene, and they're out of there. Could you imagine the shepherds just making this a one-time, quick-hour conversation and bolting? No. Especially if they were from that region, a friendship began to develop, and the discussions that they would have, certainly the shepherds sharing with Mary and Joseph, what had happened in the field, what the angels said, what they saw, the heavenly host. And Joseph sharing what has happened with them. Mary and Joseph sharing the visitation, the annunciation, all that's going on, all the scripture that's been fulfilled so far. Not just a one-time thing, but we can imagine the shepherds paid many visits as long as the Holy Family laid there. Eight days later, the time comes for the Mosaic law to be fulfilled. And we read, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. According to Mosaic law, eight days later, a male child was to be circumcised, to be welcomed into the family of Abraham. Circumcision, a symbol, but it was a symbol that Jesus would not have been bound to, similar to Jesus being baptized. He submitted himself to the law, but he didn't need to be. And so where did this take place? Where did the circumcision eight days later take place? I think we would, we kind of customarily think that, well, it would make sense, similar to our baptisms, right? We go, we go to church, that they would go to the temple or the nearby synagogue that this would take place. But that's not prescribed in Mosaic law. It could be done and oftentimes was done within the home of the family. And the early church is pretty unanimous in taking it for granted that it just was the case that Jesus was circumcised in the cave. St. Epiphanius writes, Again, just taking it as this is just is what it is, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, 
circumcised in the cave, presented in Jerusalem. And if we consider how filthy and uninviting the cave was, thinking of why would they spend their first week (laughs) there? Because at this time, enough days had gone by, people that had other things to do, stopping by Bethlehem, staying, jotting down their name, moving on. That if Joseph wanted to find better accommodations, he certainly could have. So why stay in the cave? Why would Joseph and in turn Mary stay there with their newborn son, Jesus Christ? Now, obviously, I don't know exactly the answer, but imagine what had just taken place. This is a holy sight. Angels they're visiting. God took his first breath here. In that kind of environment, in that place that you would have that experience, I don't think you'd want to be ready to just bolt out of there, even for more comfort. You'd be so wrapped in a spiritual high that all of that would be disregarded. And tradition holds that similar to in Lourdes, that there was indeed a miraculous spring that sprung up in the cave to sustain the Holy Family while they were there. So, let's say that they were remaining in the cave. Who was it that performed the circumcision on Jesus? Scripture's obviously silent here. And we would tend to think that, of course, well, similar to, again, our baptism, that it would be a priest that would do this, right? This custom. But again, when you look at Mosaic law, that is not something that's required by Mosaic law. The responsibility for circumcision falls to the Father. It is his responsibility to make sure that his son is circumcised in accordance with Mosaic law. And so we hear, for example, from saints like St. Ephraim, the Syrian, that if Jesus Christ had not true flesh, whom did Joseph circumcise? Many in the early church believed that it was simply Joseph that did this. He was the father of Jesus, and it was the father's responsibility for making sure that his child was circumcised. And so the early church fathers tie this belief to the fact that he was, that the angel proclaimed to Joseph, right, and told him that you will name him Jesus, and you shall call his name Jesus. You, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. And so if it was him precisely that was told to name the child, they tie in that it would be him that would then circumcise the child. And so here, those eight days later, is this first opportunity for Joseph to exhibit his fatherhood, his call, his vocation in salvation history. 
Now the mystics, so the early church fathers talk about it being Joseph. The mystics do differ on this point. The mystics do say that Joseph went out and got a priest to perform the ritual. I think the key here is to not mistake that it's the father's responsibility. Whether it be his hand or he appoints someone to do it, Joseph is responsible for Jesus' circumcision. And so that, therefore, means that before Jesus shed any blood on the cross, that it was Joseph that was responsible for the first drops of blood of our Savior. And we imagine this, similar to Mary's heart being pierced, Joseph's heart being cut. Because he would certainly not want to cut, this is God, draw blood on him. And whether it be his hand, whether it be the hand of the priest, certainly he maybe had thought, hopefully God intercedes like Abraham with Isaac. (laughs) And tells me, whoa, whoa, stop, 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 stop. Don't do that to my son. (laughs) But he doesn't. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, submits submits himself fully to the law. So indeed, Joseph being responsible for the knife that would cut the flesh of God and those first drops of holy blood would therefore flow. Jesus offering himself, Mary willingly allowing it to be done, and Joseph responsible for this first sacrifice. Now, it's important in the church to consider what witness this, this gives. Because early on in the church, it didn't take long for this heresy to come into play, for this attack, where they said, okay, we believe that Jesus is God, but we think he just looked human. I think this is like 70 AD or something like that, that he just looked human. It wasn't, he didn't really take on the flesh, even I guess as bad as that looked. But I think it's important that from the very beginning, God makes a point to drive home that this is not just what you're seeing. This is not a ghost. That God is bleeding. God is flesh. God has come and dwelt among his people and taken on a human nature. So right from the very beginning, that takes place. Erasing all the doubt. And so then, after circumcision, Joseph finally does it. He fulfills God's command, and for the first time, he pronounces the name at which every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus. That name for the first time pronounced by Joseph. That name which was to be declared upon his son. So he fulfills this role. And one imagines if anyone was present outside of Mary and Joseph, 
if the shepherds maybe had come along, if he indeed had gotten a priest that's similar to the Garden of Gethsemane, that as soon as Joseph says his name is Jesus, we can imagine every knee bowing, almost instinctively, maybe not even knowing why. And certainly the angels that would have been present at this moment, for again, every knee, even in heaven, would bow. Their guardian angels, the angels that were there, all bowing at the name of Jesus, first proclaimed by Joseph. A name that we think, how many times in the last 2,000 plus years has the name of Jesus been proclaimed? Every Hail Mary, smack dab in the middle, going all the way back, the first person to say his name was Joseph, fulfilling what the angel had commanded him. And so now that the Son of God has a name, Jesus, Joseph can finish the enrollment with the census. Now, he might have already enrolled his name in the name of Mary on, the, on uh, whatever that was that they were using there in Bethlehem. But now Jesus is here. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus' home then is Bethlehem, just like Joseph. Joseph passes on all of that to Jesus. And Joseph then has to go, and he inscribes the name of Jesus in that census. Jesus' name would have been inscribed there, just alongside Joseph and Mary. And it erases any doubt that anyone in the church, especially early on, could have that this story was made up. For they know that the Savior is to be born in Bethlehem, but this erases any doubt or any discussion that could be had. And we see in Jesus' time, the Gospel of John, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Maybe after this discussion they did it, but if anyone did their homework, it'd be real easy. Go open the census. What names do we have? And there he is. Prophecy fulfilled. There's no discussion. Pharisees, anybody doubting that? Nobody has that ammo. It's right there in the census, the Roman census. And so all these events taking place, and then finally, the time has come for the Gentiles. <laughs> the Gentiles. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. God came first for his people Israel, but he came for everybody. He came to fulfill that worldwide blessing that would come from Abraham that he promised. And so here we have the first Gentiles. And it's beautiful because when you think of the shepherds and you think of these magi, 
they personify the only people that God can work with, right? The people that know nothing. They're lowly. They're simple. The shepherds. And then you have the magi, the people that know they don't know everything. God can work with either of those. He can't work with people that think they've got it all together. (laughs) And so here is now Christmas, the epiphany, Christmas for the Gentiles. And so these magi, we sometimes hear them referred to as the kings. They would not be kings as we normally think of, but they would be of the higher, certainly of the higher class of society. They were astrologers, and if you were going to study the stars, you had to be a high enough class because otherwise you wouldn't have the time to perform that kind of activity. (laughs) So they were higher class, these magi, these kings. And they're looking at the sky. Why are they looking at the sky? Why do they see this star appear And it begins to drive them towards Jerusalem, towards Bethlehem, towards Nazareth, towards the Holy Land. Centuries earlier, there's this prophet, Balaam, from Arabia to the east. He was sent by the king to curse Israel. If you remember this story, he's sent to curse Israel. But as he goes up there, right, he goes up the hill, he looks upon the Israelites And he blesses them, infuriates the king, but he can't curse them. He doesn't curse them. Instead, he blesses them, and he says, he prophesies, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not nigh. A star shall come forth out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. These People, these Gentiles in Arabia, waited centuries to see what this prophecy was that Balaam had pronounced to their people. And St. Jerome says that this, at their time, would have been very, very vivid in their memories, that this was not something that was lost to time. And so, these three magi, at least traditionally it's counted as three, right? While they are three and they arrive together, the reality is they would not have all been huddled together seeing the stars and have gone off together. They were most likely from various regions in Arabia. And so what a meeting that here they are traveling to the Holy Land and all of a sudden, they intersect, and now there's these three <laughs> that are all sharing the same story. Yeah, did you see the star? Yeah, Balaam's prophecy. We got to go check this out. So they're heading to the Holy Land, and the star disappears. All right, we're near Jerusalem. It's the capital, right? Obviously, these were high enough up that they could demand a meeting with King Herod himself. So they ask him, right, where, where is this king who has been born of the Jews? We've seen his star. We've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard, heard this, he was troubled 
and all Jerusalem with him. Quite an understatement to say that Herod was troubled and even that all of Jerusalem was troubled. If you remember a few months ago, we talked about Herod. He was great economically and all of those things, but he was mighty fearful of anybody that would threaten him. He was murderous beyond belief, even the whiff of anything going on. And so he would be troubled on, oh, wait a second here. What's, what you talking about? Let's, let's have a little conversation here. What is it you're talking about? In Jerusalem, anybody that was in the vicinity, if they heard that Herod had heard this news, that possibly the Messiah had come, heads are going to roll. We've seen how this plays out many, many times before. Herod's so murderous that the slaughter of the innocents isn't even recorded in his, uh, in his biography, if you will, or because it was so small it didn't even, didn't even register. <laughs> it wasn't a large enough number to care about. But they ascertain the location of the promised Messiah And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them at what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And so they're off to Bethlehem. It's about five miles away, so not a very long journey for them. And halfway there, in, the, in a location now known as the Well of the Star or the Well of the Three Kings, the star reappears to them halfway. As Scripture says, And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Again, tradition has that the location here is the cave, that they are still in the grotto, and tradition holds that the Magi appeared 12 days after the birth of Jesus, and that's why we celebrate the Epiphany always on January 6th. The tradition that that is how long uh, the time between Jesus' birth and when the Magi appeared. And so here, all of a sudden, this cave is now going to lay host to these dignitaries from the east. And again, it would then be Joseph who hears this on the outside, goes to investigate. He is the guardian of our Savior and our Blessed Mother Mary. And so he meets with these magi. Oh my gosh! They've come all the way from the east to worship our Savior even in this abode, an abode where you have the magi, the shepherds, similar to when we come to Mass, we are all equal in adoring our Lord and Savior. And so it says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, 
gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those that are used to the finer things in life wisp them away and fall down in adoration again to this babe lying in a manger. The Holy Family honored by the Magi with these great gifts. And so Joseph and Mary then, similar to the shepherds, we can't imagine that this was a quick fleeting incident, but the Magi would have stayed a while or made frequent visits to the grotto. And it would have been Mary and Joseph then who were the first to ever to instruct the Gentiles. They came simply because of the prophecy of Balaam. And now Joseph and Mary could open up all that the Lord had done in salvation history for Israel and all that had been present here in these last few months, again, instructing these Gentiles. And the Magi sharing with them the star we've been waiting for. And, oh yeah, we stopped off in Jerusalem and, uh, yeah, we told Herod what was going on. (laughs) And so amongst this joy, however, you can kind of imagine that Joseph's like, that doesn't sound very good. (laughs) So Herod is aware that the possible Messiah is here in Bethlehem and uh, you guys journeyed here to to go meet him. Okay. (laughs) But in all things, they have faith in God. So what they do, right? They would discern. They pray. They join with these magi in prayer, discerning, okay, what do we do, Lord? What is your will here? And so then the Magi, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God's will revealed. Take a new route. Magi, go home. And many, many years later, after the ascension, uh, fun fact, if you will, tradition holds that the Apostle Thomas, who went off to the East, actually ordained them as bishops of the church um, out there, and and they are still reverenced today as such. These first Gentiles who witnessed the Incarnation. And so the Magi leave. Mary, Joseph, and their child left there in Bethlehem. They made some friends in the shepherds, but generally been rejected. And they know that Herod is aware that something may be going on in that little town of Bethlehem that I have some interest in. And thanks be to God, for whatever reason, he let some time pass before executing any plan. Maybe he was business with, uh, had business with other economic affairs. It was also messianic times. He himself thought he could be the Messiah, if you remember. So maybe there were other messiahs that he also needed to deal with and kind of figure out what was going on. But Mary and Joseph are stuck here. There's still more to be accomplished. They know that here soon they need to go to the temple and present Jesus. Mary needs to be purified. And what of Herod? What is to come 
God, your will be done. Let it be known. And it's there that we will pick up next month. (laughs) And we'll talk about the presentation in the temple and likely begin, if not get into, the flight to Egypt. And so we'll end our time here with prayer and we'll ask our Lord now to forgive us for the times that we have rejected when Joseph with Mary and Jesus knocked on our doors in life and we were too busy don't have room, don't have time. We'll ask for forgiveness for those times. We'll ask for the wisdom to discern God's will, to follow where it is that he might call, when he calls. Only what God wills is good. Joseph, being patient and waiting to go to Bethlehem until he was called, not getting ahead of what God had prepared. And we'll ask God's help to accept those that God sends to us, like the shepherds and the magi, whether they're lowly, whether they're seen as sinners, that we can be open to ministering to those like Joseph was and bring people fully to Jesus. And so we'll pause here, and we will pray our litany of St. Joseph, but we'll pause for a moment of silence, and if you have any prayer intentions that you hold in your heart, you can lift them up silently in prayer, and then we will begin asking for this great saint's intercession, and that he bring these prayers to Jesus, and that he bring Jesus to us. Mighty St. Joseph, we ask you to bring Jesus to each heart that is here. We ask you, Joseph, to bring Jesus to each one of these intentions that we hold in our hearts, those of our family members, our friends, those in need that we don't see. We ask you to bring Jesus to a world that is dying for him. May we be like you, Joseph, and bring Jesus into the world. And so we pray the litany of St. Joseph. Lord, have mercy. 
Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, hear us. Christ, graciously hear us. God, the Father in heaven. God, the Son, Redeemer of the world. God, the Holy Spirit. Holy Trinity, one God. Holy Mary. Saint Joseph. Illustrious Son of David. Light of Patriarchs. Spouse of the Mother of God. Guardian of the Redeemer. Pure Guardian of the Virgin. Provider for the Son of God. Zealous Defender of Christ. Servant of Christ. Minister of Salvation. Head of the Holy Family. Joseph, most just. Joseph, most chaste. Joseph, most prudent. Joseph, most brave. Joseph, most obedient. Joseph, most loyal. Mirror of patience. Lover of poverty. Model for workers. Glory of family life. Guardian of virgins. Cornerstone of families. Support in difficulties. Comfort of the sorrowing. Hope of the sick. Patron of exiles. Patron of the afflicted. Patron of the poor. Patron of the dying. Terror of demons. Protector of the Holy Church. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. He made him master of his house. Let us pray. O God, who in your inexpressible providence were pleased to choose St. Joseph as spouse of your most holy mother, grant, we pray, that we who revere him as our protector on earth may be worthy of his heavenly intercession, who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may the Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.